know. Nice gal. Okay. Seems like pleasant people are from there mostly. Anyhow, Ayin. I watch no shade. Um, I have done what is righteous and just. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Ensure your servants' well-being. Let not the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail, looking for your salvation, looking for your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your love and teach me your decrees. I am your servant. Give me discernment that I may understand your statutes. It is time for you to act, O Lord. Your law is being broken. Because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, and because I consider all your precepts right. I hate every wrong path. Okay, good. And we have uh, 20 July. Yes, that's correct. Uh, one plants, another waters, but God gives the increase. James Taylor, not the singer. folk singer, had a pharmacy in Yorkshire, England. Early 1832, he knelt in the back of his shop beside his pregnant wife, Amelia, and prayed. Dear God, if you should give us a son, grant that he may work for you in China. God gave them a son, Hudson Taylor. I can see where this is going. God gave them a son a few months later, and they named him James Hudson Taylor. Yep. Although his parents did not tell him of their prayer for him for years, as a boy, he would often say, when I'm a man, I mean to be a missionary and go to China. But by the time Hudson was 17, he was a typical rebellious teenager and had no interest in being a missionary. But his family continued to pray. That summer, when his mother was visiting her sister 40 miles away, she felt led to lock herself in a room to pray for Hudson's salvation and not come out until she had the assurance that her prayer had been answered. Back home, Hudson picked up a gospel tract that afternoon on Christ's death on the cross for sinners and accepted the Savior. Within a few months after Hudson experienced his new birth, his call to China was reconfirmed during a night of prayer, which he described as filled with unspeakable awe and unspeakable joy. With a sense of urgency, Hudson finished his schooling and sailed for China at the age of 21. At that time, there were 350 baptized Chinese believers. During his first term, he married and made several evangelistic trips into the closed interior of China, but was forced to return to England because of illness. There he regained his health and felt an increasing burden for the millions in the interior of China. When the interior was open to Westerners, Hudson could no, find no mission willing to back him, so he founded the China Inland Mission in 1865. The CIM had several unique distinctives. It was interdenominational and missionaries were recruited from the working class rather than from the universities. Direct appeals for funds were forbidden, with missionaries depending directly upon God for their support. Initially, Hudson prayed for 24 workers, two for each unreached province of China. The first 15 sailed in May 1866, and by 1882, the China Inland Mission had workers in every province. By 1895, it had 641 missionaries. And by 1914, the China Inland Mission was the largest missionary organization, reaching its peak in 1934 with 1,368 missionaries. There were now 500,000 baptized believers in China. Then civil war broke out between the Chinese nationalists and the commies. The two enemies joined forces to fight Japan, but after the war, they went back to fighting each other. 
By September 1949, the Chinese communists had won and the nationalists retreated to the island of Taiwan. The last CIM workers left China on July 20th, 1953, leaving behind about one million believers. The first two decades under communism were one of intense persecution. In reaction, the church went underground and many Christians stopped attending church. By 1980, however, there were two million believers. Since the early 1980s, the growth of the church in China has no parallels in history. In 2000, there were approximately 75 million. Wow. Well, anyway, one guy prays over his Didn't son. Didn't you say Something like that. Yeah. Man, and China's just abusing those people now. Mm. Well, uh, let's see what we have here. We'll finish that some other time. That's where my great grandfather was. Was a missionary? Him? I don't know if he, who he was under, but he was a missionary there. Mm. He was a medical missionary. Um. I told you last week that somebody uh, said that he would pay for anybody in the church here. It can't be online because there's so many people they go broke. But anybody in the church here that wants to see The Sound of Freedom, he would buy the tickets. Well, he sent me money. So if you want to go see it, and I'll remember this on Sunday too, uh, just let me know and I'll give you the money for the tickets. Have you seen it? <clears throat> Not yet. What's that? It's excellent. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard it's very good. So just let me know. Um, back saddle Pete, who had one eye done two Mondays ago. He's fine with his eye, and now he's going to have the other eye done this Monday. So please keep him in prayer so he has both eyes working properly. In another week and a half, he should be completely fixed. Um, Joan, have you heard how she's doing? She's doing well. Good. We're going out to lunch with her tomorrow. Okay, you're going out to lunch with her tomorrow. Just want to make sure. Keep Joan in prayer. She's the one that broke her humorous, which is not very humorous. And uh, so uh, just keep Joan in prayer. I called Tom a while ago. He is still really suffering with pain. I know. talking to him just yeah. every day. He's, he's uh, just miserable. So uh, uh, just have Tom in prayer. Um, he wants to be able to get out and drive is what's bothering him. And he's got a, a manual transmission. So I told him he can take my truck. And he says he might do that, but he wants to find out if he can really drive first. Sure. And so, uh, uh, yeah. And he's got somebody else that may have a car that's closer. But anyway, uh, keep Tom in prayer. He is just miserable. Although he won't tell you that. He no, just, no. He, he was telling me it is. But well, because this is like more pain than anyone even talked oh, to yeah. about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just miserable. So, and then uh, John Carrico is, we, we're thinking he's doing better. They're taking less out of his stomach now, less fluids, and uh, he's on one of those super nutrition drink diets. So, uh, uh, we just want to keep John in prayer. And um, uh, there was one other person I was supposed to write down, and I forgot, and I'm so sorry. But anyway, the Lord knows. So, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence and to uh, just thank you for your goodness to the people of this world. 
and uh, thank you for people that are willing to pray over their children and their grandchildren and and uh, set them on a right course for their life. They can have such a change and an effect on the people of this world. Um, Lord, we pray for the Christians in China right now that are really big. We pray for the missionaries that are around the world that are doing their job. We pray that you would bless them, take care of them, and guide them in their steps. And Lord, uh, we just pray for all these people we just mentioned, the pains they're growing through. I pray for my older brother, Evan, who hasn't come to you yet, Lord. He certainly needs you, and we pray about that, but also pray for the surgery he went through today on his hernia. And uh, I pray for this class, Lord, that we would be responsible with your word. Thank you. Thank you that we can look at the, this word in freedom, that we can study it, that we can uh, cherish it. And uh, Lord, we've had a huge, huge falling away from this word in this nation in the recent past. And I would pray that uh, whatever it takes to bring this nation to its knees and to humble itself before you, that you would look with favor on that, even if it means complete collapse of our economy or some other disaster. Lord, the souls are worth more than living prosperously. So we pray for whatever it takes to get this nation turned back to you. England as well, Ireland, these countries that once called on you and were so sound in their faith are so far away from you. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for all you do for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's see here. We got... Uh, We've got big letters on this verse. Pre-trib verse. Pre-trib verse. Uh, we're in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. Burke says it's a pre-trib verse. So we're going to find out if I agree with that. Because I'm a little sketchy on the whole pre-trib thing. But... Uh, uh, let's see here. Okay, we're in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, but you, you go wherever you want to go. verse 4. 4. should be a paragraph. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. 6. So let us not be like others who are asleep. But let us be alert and self-controlled. Seven, four, those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Nine, four, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that certainly looks like a pre-tribulation rapture verse. Maybe I can dispel your misunderstandings in a minute. <laughs> this one says it a little differently. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, come here. Come here. Hurry up. We've started. So you got to get up here really quickly. We just had some people. Did you just arrive? No. Oh, okay. Well, then they're late for class. Go sit down. Come here. <laughs> Oh, it's so good to see you. They came all the way from Arkansas to see us, so. Wow, wow, so good to have you guys here. Ah, okay. Uh, let's see here. All right, that's very wonderful. You made it just, we're just starting the first verse right now, so you didn't miss anything. Um, let's see, we have, uh, uh, we're in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. The word for is given to explain further what Paul has just said concerning living as we wait on the Lord. 
And because of this hope, God did not appoint us to wrath. That's Paul's words. They're not mine. Uh, people can take them how they want them, but it is quite apparent that taken in the context of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, he is obviously speaking about a time of wrath on the earth. He's not speaking about you know, uh, having bad times in this world, like God didn't appoint us to wrath of the Chinese communists, or God didn't, that's not what he's speaking about. He is obviously speaking about the context of the wrath that is coming on the world, okay? So Burke is absolutely right. He's got me in a box and I cannot get out of it. He is referring to a pre-tribulation rapture. The point of living in a right manner is because we have a true hope of not being caught up in God's wrath. If such were the case, there would be little point in right living. Every good thing we did would be in vain, and all that we could expect is a reward of pain and misery for our efforts. But such is not the case at all. Instead of being appointed to wrath, we have been appointed to obtain, Paul's word, salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word translated as, as obtain is peripoesis. It is a word which means to make one's own or to completely obtain. Literally, it signifies for abundant, meaning all around gain, okay? Believers have made a choice in Christ Jesus. They have put their trust in him and God has used that trust to guarantee our salvation. There's nothing the believer has done to merit this, but rather it is a choice of trusting solely in the merits of Christ for salvation. This is why Paul states, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith is directed towards him, and our salvation is obtained through who he is, what he has done, and the means which he has decided for it to come about. Everything is a work of the Lord. There is nothing that we do to participate in our salvation. I've been thinking about this all week long. Obviously, it's something that comes up in every commentary or everything that you read in the Bible, um, but especially that guy last week that uh, emailed me. He's been on my mind all week. He's never responded to my email, but he said, I'm convinced that I need to observe a Sabbath. And so uh, I sent him my response. I sent him, you know, here it is. It's, this is a short, condensed response. There's a lot more involved in it. But um, uh, if you believe that you must observe a Sabbath, then you are saying that God's grace is not sufficient for you and you have to do something in, er in order to merit God's favor in order to either be saved or continue to be saved. Okay, talk about contradictory thinking. Go right back to the book of Galatians, all right? And Paul said, you started in faith. Why would you put that aside and now expect to obtain God's favor through deeds of the law? And that's a Charlie Garrett paraphrase, but the whole point is that you were saved by faith. That's what the Bible says. You believed and you received the Spirit. And obviously, at, in Galatia at the time, they received the Spirit in an open, demonstrable way. The Bible wasn't yet sealed, and so these type of things happened. They happened with Cornelius. They were listening to Peter speak. They didn't do anything. They had not observed a Sabbath. They still had uh, the morning pork in their stomach from uh, breakfast, okay? They had done nothing. They simply heard Peter speaking, they believed it as he was speaking. It didn't say they said anything. It, didn't, it doesn't say they did anything. And the Spirit came down upon them. Okay? This is salvation by grace through faith. Okay? Now, that happened to the household of Cornelius. 
okay? 18 days later after Peter left, the Judaizers came in and they said, we heard you were converted to Christianity. Well, now you need to start observing the law of Moses. Now you need to start uh, observing the Sabbath. You need to do this. And you, I'm just saying that they, this didn't really happen. Right. The Bible doesn't say that. I'm saying this is the type of thinking that people have in their theology today. They got saved. They admit that they were saved, and all of a sudden they're out doing Hebrew root stuff. They're going to churches that tell them they have to tithe. They're going to churches that, you know, tell them that we need to meet on Sunday morning and on Sunday afternoon and on Wednesday night. They're they're doing all these Sunday things. Or Saturday. What? Sunday or Saturday. No, I'm saying that's a difference. Okay, one is right. Sabbath, the other one is, you know, Sunday, Sunday people. Right. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, that would be the typical Baptist people. If you don't do it, you're not a good Christian, etc. All of these things are just things that people impose on you that are not in the Bible. Okay, you didn't get baptized. You can't be saved. You didn't get baptized. I'll leave that out because that's in Sunday sermon. Anyway, people just suddenly start saying that what happened to you is irrelevant. That your salvation that actually happened to you and you knew that you were saved and that you believed in the gospel no longer matters. And that's that bothers me that people can't see what Paul wrote about 2,000 years. They can't take the time to pick up the book of Galatians and read it and think about what Paul says. Oh, anyway, we'll go on. The same word is used in Hebrews 10, 39 to show that faith, uh, that it is faith which makes this possible. Hebrews, all right, whoops, that was way too far back. Um, let's see here, Hebrews 10, 39. Ah, boy. Um, Hebrews, oh, now I'm in 1, 4, 6, and okay, 10 and 26, 38. Oh, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. Okay, Hebrews 10, 39. The word saving is the same as obtain here. The faith, those who believe in Christ is what secures this. Again, it is faith in what Christ has done, and it is sufficient to be saved from God's wrath, okay? That's it, there's nothing else you have to do. So if you are told that you need to do this or this or this after you've been saved in order to be saved from God's wrath, you have been misled, all right? It, it, it's maddening to see how people can fall away from something so simple. I said this last Sunday, I actually said it twice. Do not mar grace, leave grace alone. Grace is grace, you can't add to it, you can't do anything to harm it except from yourself. In other words, God has given you grace. It is bestowed on you. Grace means that you are saved the moment that you believed and you will always be saved. When you say, I have lost my salvation because I did this, that means that you believe what you did is greater than what Christ did. You can outperform Jesus in wickedness from his grace. In other words, your wickedness outperforms his grace. It's impossible, okay? That's, it's an arrogant attitude to have. It is saying that I have the ability to outdo Jesus, whether it's your own wickedness or whether it's your own righteousness. I'm gonna do these deeds because he didn't do enough, whatever it is. It just diminishes what Jesus did. So, um, Joy stealers. absolutely. Uh, there are the word, I've said that, uh, let's see here, to be saved from God's wrath. An argument concerning the timing of the rapture comes up from this verse by some. Okay, maybe I'm going to dispute this. I typed this eight years ago, so we'll find out. For it says, for God did not appoint us to wrath. Some will argue that this means believers will be completely exempt from the tribulation period. 
and that these words justify a pre-tribulation rapture. Others state that it justifies a mid-tribulation rapture because Revelation speaks of the wrath of the Lamb. That's called the pre-wrath view, okay? Uh, that's what, um, what's his name, uh, John Holler holds to and other people, they believe in a pre-wrath uh, rapture, which is only the second half of the, tri the tribulation period. Excuse me. Paul's, Paul's use of the word elsewhere could rightly be used to justify the former but he also uses the term in the present tense when speaking of the Jews in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 16. However, the second option, that the wrath of the Lamb pointing to a mid-tribulation rapture is impossible to justify. Nowhere does Paul indicate any such connection as this. Okay, and that's an important thing. I had forgotten that I had typed this. It could support a pre-tribulation rapture. Okay, I argue that without saying it definitely does. But... At the same time, it cannot support a mid-tribulation rapture. The reason why is because if Paul was identifying that as a doctrine, he would have it would be supportable elsewhere from what Paul has given. Because as I've said, he is the one that uh, gave us the doctrine of the rapture. He gave us the timeline of the doctrine of the rapture. He gave all of the instances that are necessary for us to understand this doctrine. Everything about the rapture is from Paul. Anything that is incidental to that doesn't really define anything. Like uh, Revelation 4, verse 1. I saw a door open in heaven and a voice said to me, come up here, and I was immediately in the spirit, etc. Okay, that is not something that proves a pre-tribulation rapture. But what it does is it supports what Paul said. Paul is the one that gave the rapture information. Nothing else will contradict that. In other words, uh, when uh, John writes about things in Revelation, nothing in there will contradict it, but it may be supportive of it. And verse 4.1, Revelation 4.1 does support the idea, but it's not something that is a rapture verse all by itself. It must be something that supports the doctrine that was introduced by Paul and that was explained by Paul and it was given all of the details by Paul. Okay, so... Um, uh, let me read that again now. We're on page uh, seven, oh, 76. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, nowhere does Paul indicate any such connection as this. But even more, this rather ludicrous analysis, speaking of a mid-trib rapture, makes the wrath of God different than the wrath of the Lamb, as if Jesus is not God. No such separation is ever noted in Scripture. And it is truly a mishandling of what is being said in order to justify an otherwise unjustifiable presupposition. In other words, somebody presupposes that it is a mid-tribulation rapture, and now they go to the Bible and they try to find a way to fit things into that presupposition. I believe that the rapture is mid-tribulation, and therefore I'm going to take Scripture and I'm going to twist it in order to fit into what I believe. Okay? Revelation 3, verse 10, speaking of the entire tribulation period, says the following. And I know that this is what Burke is thinking of. I know it is because it just makes complete sense. Okay, But Revelation 3, verse 10 says, Because you have kept my command to persevere. Now he's speaking to a church, one of the seven churches. I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth, okay? So that right there absolutely supports Paul's theology. It supports what Paul said. It's not a 
pre-tribulation rapture verse all by itself, but it supports what Paul has given us and introduced to us. Okay, Revelation 3, verse 10. Where was I? It speaks of the entire tribulation period. Jesus says to this church, which is a represent, the seven churches are seven actual churches that existed. Okay, does everybody understand that? They were real churches. They really went through these problems. Sure. What Jesus did is he took seven churches and he said, you have this issue. You have this issue. You have this issue. You have this issue. And all of these things that are going on in these churches are things that can happen in any church at any time. And the state of the church will be reflective of something going on there. There may be overlap, but it is, he's taking seven real churches and he's going to say, this is a broad example of what's going to happen in the church age. All over the world, churches everywhere, you are going to have these issues identified. And what he says here is, I'll read it again. Uh, where is it? Because you have kept my command to persevere. He's speaking about the church in general, even though he's speaking to a individual church, okay? I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Is that church in, let me see, that was the church of, what was it? Um, that was uh, the angel of Philadelphia. Okay, is the church at Philadelphia still in existence? Probably not. No, it, that church dissolved a billion years ago, okay? So, it, in other words, what he is saying is something that must apply to the church as a whole. Okay, it, it hasn't been a billion years because there haven't no. been a billion. Okay, right. I was wrong on that. Anyway, um, uh, so obviously what he says, I'm going to keep you from the testing that has come upon the whole world applies to any church that has done what he said. If they are in that category, they have not completely apostatized or whatever, that must be what he is speaking about. Okay, that's just a little bit. I'm not going to get real uh, deep into the book of Revelation, but um, you, you can get the point there. This it's is speaking. Funny. Can I say something about that? It was funny because when I first read Revelation back in the day, I yep. was just coming out of my Catholic, you know, crazy stuff, and I was like, okay, well, one of them has to be like, you know, every church must still belong to each of these congregations. That oh, are, yeah. It's like, yeah. no, I don't think so. No. But. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, this is speaking of the entire tribulation period, which comprises everything after the letters to the seven churches. Okay, the letters to the seven churches are addressed to people during the during the church age, the dispensation of grace, right? That's, that's what he's doing. He's telling you this is what's going on right now. Okay, you'd have to go back and read the Revelation commentary to get the whole picture of what's going on, but he, uh, I, I won't go there. It'll just take too long. We'll be on that one thought all night. But he's writing to the seven churches. That is the church age, okay? Unless you're a hyper-dispensationalist, and then they believe that it's writing to the Jews of the end times, and it has nothing to do at all with the church. And the reason why they come to this conclusion, or the reason that they think they can support this really bad conclusion, is because of the Jewish terminology that Jesus uses all through the letters to the seven churches. Like, I will remove your lampstand, okay? And obviously, the church doesn't have a lampstand because we're the church and we're not the Jewish temple. What is he using there when he says, I will remove your lampstand? What, well, what he's using it's a, a literary device called a metaphor okay it is this represents this 
okay? The Old Testament was types and shadows. It was metaphors of Christ to come, of the church to come, of the rapture. He was making these analogies, pictures, typology, metaphors, etc. okay? And this is what he is continuing to do. This symbolism from the Old Testament is being brought forth into the New. And if you just go through there, what does Paul do? He says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us, okay? Is Christ a lamb? Okay, but we use the metaphor of a lamb to identify him in his purity and innocence, okay? He's not a sheep. He's a human being. And so even Paul uses this Jewish terminology to describe things going on in the church. He does it all the time, okay? Well, they take John's words of Revelation 1 through 3, and they say, well, that can't be talking to the church because it's all Jewish terminology, completely missing the fact that everything in the Old Testament was pointing to what? Jesus. Jesus. Everything. And afterward, Jesus is using the same terminology to describe things that we must know. Okay? He's not going to suddenly start changing the terminology because then the Bible would have no coherence at all. It would make no sense at all. Okay? So, uh, uh, this is speaking of the entire tribulation period, which comprises everything after the letters to the seven churches, all the way up to the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19. The next verse after that then says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Those words are tied into the thought of the hour of trial. In other words, he will come quickly, and then will come the hour of trial. It would make no sense to say that one is coming quickly, meaning unexpectedly, if the timing of his coming was already known, meaning one halfway through the tribulation period. He wouldn't do that. That's not something that he's going to do. And all of the things that he said to Israel under the law in Matthew 24 about being ready, about this and that, nobody's going to know the day and the hour. None of that would have any bearing if a mid-tribulation rapture was correct. It's a completely sloppy theology, but besides that, we've already gone through in advance 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to go through it again when we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, okay? So when we do, we're going to go through it again. Paul has given us an exacting timeline of what is coming. It's not something that we need to guess. We don't need to. He's already told us exactly. So, you know, people are constantly sending me the... Uh, the uh, Antichrist is, or it could be this guy. I couldn't care. I could not care who the Antichrist is because he's not going to be revealed until after we are gone. That's the timeline that Paul gives. I'm not going to spend all my time reading 8,000 things about the Antichrist and watching 50 videos a day trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. One, we're not going to know, and two, I couldn't care. It's the Pope. It's the Pope. Okay, so. Uh, you, sir. Are out of order. Uh, we had that on the uh, bathroom in the ladies' bathroom on the ba on the toilet because um, uh, the the uh, uh, the yeah the well you know what it wasn't the flapper it's just that the uh, the stand where the water goes in was misformed and so the flapper would no longer sit on it so I had to rebuild the toilet and uh, who wrote this was this you. Oh, my wife wrote. I could guess that's her handwriting. But now I have something to uh, chastise people when they are out of order in the class. Uh, okay, so um, 
uh, yeah, so it, that was the world's fastest toilet rebuild. She brought that in 15 minutes before we started class, and I was back out here eight minutes before we started class. So seven minutes it took to rebuild a toilet. No, no, one minute okay. for washing your hands. And one minute for washing my hands. Yeah, that's true. But it wasn't just putting in a flapper. It was rebuilding the entire thing. The entire guts of the toilet was replaced. So, huh? I had a supervisor, not help. There's a difference. Okay, so um, let's see here. Um, uh, entire, behold, I'm coming quickly, hour of trial. Where was I? Uh, yes. Um, uh, okay, the only justifiable position from a right understanding of Scripture concerning the rapture is that it will occur, and only then will the world enter the seven years of tribulation. There's nothing else that the Bible speaks of. There's nothing else the Bible refers to. As I said, when, when you uh, go to defend a pre-tribulation rapture, you will always, every commentary I've ever seen on a mid or pre-tribulation rapture will always cite whose words that they're not supposed to cite. Jesus. Jesus is speaking to who and under what context? He is speaking to Israel and he's speaking to them under the law about matters that deal with them. That is it. He's not speaking to the church. Now there are times when he makes a reference and it is talking about the church, but that was veiled at the time. When he is speaking about these things to Israel, he is speaking to them under the law about things that pertain to them. Nobody else, okay? But, you know, you have to ask a mid-tribulation person or uh, post-tribulation person when they cite Jesus, you know, Matthew 24, which they will do. They have to in order to come to their conclusion. Then you get one of the other things that Jesus says somewhere in the Gospels, and you take it and you put it next to what Paul says here, and you say, okay, now defend how these are compatible. And the one I always like to use because it's so obvious is... Um, uh, I pray that you may be counted worthy to stand before the Son of Man. Does that fit at all with what Paul says in his epistles? Not even close. Those are so diametrically opposed, they have nothing to do with one another. We are never in the church told by Paul, who gives the doctrine for the church age, to pray that we may stand and counted worthy before the Son of Man. We are deemed worthy because of his work on the cross. That is it. It is done. It is completely done. We do not have to pray for that. Whether we deserve it or not is a completely different point. Or whether I've done something so stupid today that I wish that I, I could just speak to him and, and say, I'm so sorry. Well, I can, but I mean really face to face. But it doesn't change my salvation at all. So, and there are lots of verses like that. Jesus says this to Israel. Paul says this here. And they do not in any way coincide. And so what you have to do, you've got to write up very convoluted commentaries to say, well, what Jesus really meant or what Paul is trying to say is, and it, it does not match. It is an impossible fix because Jesus is speaking under the dispensation of the law. Paul is writing under the dispensation of grace, but more the Gentile-led church age. They're incompatible, okay? That doesn't mean that what Jesus said is wrong, and it doesn't mean that what Jesus said is inappropriate. It is a different context, and context is king in biblical interpretation. If you remember those things, you will always keep yourself from really poor doctrine, okay? That's all there is to it. 
mid-tribulation and post-tribulation are very poor doctrine. As a matter of fact, they're not even doctrine. They're just wrong. You could say, well, that's poor doctrine. You're, you kind of got an idea about what's right, but they're not even doctrine. They're just wrong. Okay. Anyway, um, life application. Uh, Though we may suffer greatly in this life, as countless millions of Christians have in the past, this is not an indication that God has poured his wrath upon his people. Okay, We can't say that that is God's wrath being poured upon us. That is man's wrath being poured upon us. Uh, That is the devil who is in control of this world working out his wickedness in this world upon the people of God. Okay? That's not what God wants for us, but God allows that in our lives for his sovereign purposes, okay? So we need to remember that, that just because we are having bad times, it does not mean that God does not like us or that his wrath is being poured out on us. If you disagree with that, fly to China right now and find out what the Christians are going through, and it's getting worse by the day. Or go to Vietnam, where Christians are still being persecuted. Or go to any of the other places in the world where people love Jesus and they are being slaughtered for their faith. Go to Africa and they have, what is it, Nigeria. I keep reporting on it. It's like 3,000 people since the beginning of the year have been killed. Well, God didn't do that. He wasn't pouring out his wrath on those Nigerian Christians. He was allowing this to happen in the world because he's not going to interfere in the affairs of this world. And bad things or good things really do come out of bad things. So God allows these things to happen. But that person's salvation is not in question when he gets his head blown off by somebody with a AK-47. That does not change his eternal state. It's sad, but that is what happens. And this may, you know, with the, the guy that's in the White House right now and with the agenda that they are pushing right now, this may come upon America in the next five years, okay? It, it could very easily be this way, all right? We don't know, and we may have to say, well, you know what? I, I've now got to really stand up for my faith. For the first time in my life, I have to be a big boy or a big girl and say, I'm going to stand up for Jesus, and it may mean losing your house. It may mean losing your life, but this is what those people want. Those people are not Christian friendly, okay? So be prepared for that, because we don't know if the rapture is going to happen or not. Be prepared, but at the you same time... Is. We don't know when. That's right. We know for sure that it's going to happen. We just don't know when. And it could be 50 years from now. All right. I'm excited about the Lord's appearance every day. But it may not happen for a while. We just don't know. I would say that it's sooner rather than later. But, you know, what do I know? I'm just going one day at a time. Okay. We're in 510. 510. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Okay, that's so close. Who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him? Very close. Okay, Um, let's see here. Got plenty of time. (laughs) Paul now completes the thought of the previous verse, beginning with the words, who died for us? He is certainly tying this into the thought of both clauses of the previous verse. For God did not appoint us to wrath because Jesus took our wrath upon himself in his death. That's the first point. God did not appoint us to wrath because Jesus took our wrath upon himself in his death. Okay, two, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, giving up his human earthly life so that we could be saved. That is called the doctrine of, anybody? 
begins with sub and ends with substitution. Anybody? <laughs> doctrine of substitution. All right. That is that doctrine. It is where Jesus did something and we receive what he did. And what we did, 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might be the, become the righteousness of God in him. Okay, that's the doctrine of substitution. All right, this is what Christ did for us. He had God's wrath poured out on him so that we don't have to have God's wrath poured out on us. Now, people don't seem to understand that. And I'm not talking about people in the church. I'm talking about people in the world. They think that everything is okay with God. I've done a lot of good stuff, and I'm going to be okay with God. They do not understand what the wrath of God means. It means that we are finite and we are fallen and he is infinite and he is perfect absolutely infinitely perfect and therefore he must judge our sin and what happened to Jesus is what is going not maybe not just on some people this is what is going to happen to humanity because they have rejected the only offer of God's grace which is Jesus Christ all of that wrath that we see in Jesus was for the people that receive Jesus. That means if Jesus is not received by them, the wrath by default will come upon them. Everybody understand that? It's a very simple equation, but we don't think it through. I'm talking about the world. There must be a debt paid. If Christ paid the debt for us and he didn't pay it for somebody else, that means that person's debt is not paid. It's outstanding. And therefore the wrath remains. This is, you know, people don't like to talk about God being angry. But as I say, God doesn't change. We'll just think of this podium right here. That is fixed. If I do something here and then I do something here, he hasn't moved. So when I am on God's wrathful side, the left side, right, and I say, I need Jesus. And he's already sent Jesus to the cross. The wrath has been poured out. I believe that God did this for me. I move over here. God did not move. He is the unmoved mover of all things, okay? I move in relation to God. And if a person is over here and doesn't move over here, then he remains over here. That's how it is. So it's a very simple example, but that's the way that it works. It's an old saying. What's that? Don't get on his bad side. Don't get on his bad side. Well, we're already there. We're already there. It is our default position, okay? So... Your default position is the bad side. You need to be moved to the propitious side, which is another word that Paul uses from the Old Testament, the hilasterion, the seat, the mercy seat, all right? It's the seat of propitiation. The mercy seat is where the blood of the animal was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement, okay? Propitiation means a right relationship. Propitious, we make somebody, there's happiness restored is basically what propitiation means. Okay, so the blood is poured out on the mercy seat. The mercy is granted. And from there, those who believe in Israel by faith on the Day of Atonement are granted this propitious state. That's why it's called the hilasterion in Greek, the mercy seat, the place of propitiation. And Jesus is the propitiation. He is our propitiatory, excuse me. And because he is, that is what restores us to God what he did, okay? But it's only a one-time act. It's not like it happens every year. It's not like it's gonna happen in another country. Nothing like that. Jesus died one time for the sins of all people in the world. 
the fact that it is a one-time deal means that it applies to each person individually, okay? But there's only one propitiation, okay? Christ, what's that? Potentially. Potentially, yeah, Christ did it for everybody potentially, but if a person accepts it, it only happens once in his life. There's no need for a further propitiation. Go to the book of Hebrews and it explains that absolutely perfectly clearly. There is no need to be resaved after you've lost your salvation because there is no uh, provision in the Bible for loss of salvation. And because there's no provision in the Bible for loss of salvation, there's also no provision for being resaved. Reborn. That's right. You were saved one time for all time. All right. So if you want to carry around your sins with you, that's fine. But God has already forgotten them. John 2 1, that's it. That's exactly right. John uses that. Uh, he uses a different word, helasmos, in John. But it's the same general idea. One is a uh, verb and one is a noun or something. I can't remember off the top of my head. But that's a, he is the propitiation for our sins. That's exactly right. And I was thinking that, but I wasn't going to say it because I couldn't remember the verse. But it's 1 John 2 1, you said? 1 John 2 1. He uses that word twice, I believe, in the epistle. So there's one more time. But I won't get that right now. Anyway, so you get what's going on. This is what God has done for us in Christ. <clears throat> it is Christ's death which delivers us from the wrath to come. That is 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10. And it is belief in his work, including his atoning death. That's why it says Christ died for our sins, meaning you're a sinner. And therefore you need atonement, all right? Uh, some people take the term atonement, which it's kind of misusing it, but that's okay. You get the point. At one meant you're brought together. Atonement, okay? That's not what the word means, but it's a very good way of looking at it. Atonement means to have your sins covered. Uh, what's the word in Hebrew? Kafar, right? Yeah, kafar, to cover. It's a covering. And, and so, in essence, when God is looking at you, he's not seeing you. Or at least he's not seeing you except through the lens of Christ. What he is seeing is the perfection of Christ instead of our sins. All right, Because we have sinned. I have sinned. And that will always be a part of who Charlie Garrett is. It's forgiven. It's gone. God sees me now through Jesus Christ. If that wasn't the case, he could never look at me. Ever. But because of Jesus, he has now brought us at one met. We are back together forever because of Jesus. All right. So it is Christ's death which delivers us from the wrath, including his atoning death, which credits, which God credits to us for righteousness. That's Romans chapter four. All right. And this is true whether we wake or sleep. This is what that's Paul's words there. Whether we wake or sleep, Paul is ensuring that the believers in Thessalonica, and therefore us. Burke lost a friend that we've prayed for in the past this past week and is being buried tomorrow, you said? Yes. Okay, he's being buried tomorrow. This person was a saved believer in Jesus Christ. He is now asleep in Christ. But Paul is saying, whether we wake or sleep, is God going to forget about that guy? Is he only going to rapture people that are alive? No, he remembers all people from the very beginning of the church. Every saved believer will be brought to life and raptured at the same moment. Okay, so... Uh, he's writing to us as well as he's writing to those in Thessalonica. Understand that Christ's return is for all believers, both those who have died, or as Paul says, sleep, and those who are awake. At his coming, all will be gathered together as one and will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. There will be none lost. 
but all shall be saved and given new and eternal life at that time. Okay, so, you know, we have this, this thing that we have to do in this world, and it's called exist. All right, I was saved 10 years ago. I was saved 40 years ago. I was saved 85 years ago. We still have to exist in this life, okay? We're going along. And during this time that we are going along, we're failing the Lord. Or we are doing our best to learn about the Lord. Or we're doing our best to serve the Lord. Whatever we do, we still have to do it. We still have to exist in this life. Okay, so Hudson Taylor decided, I'm going to spend my life, after he got through his rowdy years, he decided, I'm going to go to China. And I'm going to be a missionary. And nobody would take him the second time. And so he said, oh, I'll just start my own organization. And he was hoping for, what, 24 people? And by yeah. the time he was done, I think it said there were over 3,000 people right. that were serving in this ministry in China. And now we're up to, I think it said when I couldn't read anymore, 75 million people or some, some huge number. Because one guy believed that it was important enough to dedicate his life to Jesus Christ. So you all have to exist. You all have to decide what you are going to do while you are awake. Because there's a day where if the Lord doesn't come first, you will be asleep and your time of working will be over. So you have to decide what are you going to do with your life during this time. Okay? Now, when I, uh, last Thursday was it? No, you were working. It had to be last Friday. You had last Friday off? Like, one day she had off and I said, guess what I'm going to do? I'm not going to set the alarm clock. I'm just going to sleep in. Wow. And so I uh, alarm clock usually goes up. I think it's at 3.32. It might be 3.33. But anyway, it goes off. And uh, usually I'm up before it. But I said, I'm sleeping in tomorrow night. I'm not setting that clock. And I was up at 3.15. Okay. Wow. And so I said, I'm not getting up. I'm staying in bed. And finally about the alarm clock did go off. I'm sorry, the alarm clock didn't go off. But I finally said about 3.30. 40. I said, I just got to get up. That's, I, I'm, this is pointless. And so, but I felt like I had a vacation because I didn't set the alarm clock, right? I, I said, I'm just going to do this thing. And I was up at the same time. And then what did I do? I got back to the regular work, which is I got to get the commentary out, type a new commentary. I've got to get the day established because I got to do all the things that will make Sunday morning possible. Okay. And so that's what I have determined that I will do with my life. We just had a couple of people that went to Missouri to minister to young people, okay? And this is what he does with his life. And he doesn't just do it for uh, a couple of weeks a year. He does it every single day of his life. He ministers to the people that he meets during those two or three weeks every year, okay? That's what he's decided to do. He's got other things he has to do because he's got a wife that has a lot of needs. She wants to buy, I'm kidding. Anyway, um, but he's got a, a regular job, but he ministers every single day of his life for other people, okay? What do you do, okay? And that doesn't mean that you, being a plumber means that you're not getting rewards. You can be a good, faithful servant of the Lord being a plumber, okay? I was in wastewater for many years before I started doing this. I finally said, I just got to do this. But while I was in wastewater, I did my very best to serve the Lord in that capacity. So, but you have to choose what your priorities are in life, okay? So, um, those who are awake. At his coming, we will all be gathered together as one. We will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. There will be none lost. All shall be saved. All will be given eternal life at that time. It is from this moment that we should live together with him. That's the point I've been making for the past five minutes. We should live together with him. We have an obligation in this life 
Christ was raised to eternal life, and so we too will be raised to eternal life. Christ ascended to heaven, and so we too shall ascend to heaven. We will participate in the events that he has laid out for us, as is detailed in the final chapters of the book of Revelation. And the saints of God shall rejoice in an existence which will never end. It will be one of marvelous wonder, endless delight, and eternal joy. Stay tuned. Christ is coming again to make all of this come about. And everything that you do right now will be credited to you if it is done in the name of the Lord. Everything. You have something? Okay. I have a question. Yes. <laughs> I wasn't here last week. So um, the sleep that he refers to here and the sleep that was back in chapter 4 is basically your death. Death. Absolutely. Right. But but last week, what I missed, uh, there was like, uh, we don't belong to the night because the night is people who sleep. Is, is Was that still a reference of death or was that just night? That was uh, uh, that was a analogy of living rightly in the world. Okay, so it, but you can go back and watch last week's. I won't I, mind. I kind of have to, but like, yeah, you know, I won't mind at all. No, I'm kidding. Anyway, yeah, that was an analogy. It was made. It right, wasn't right. speaking of death. Right. That's okay. correct. Right. Okay. So, um, having said that, what I just said about Christ is coming. He's going to make it all come about. The word together isn't to be connected with the words with him. Rather, it refers to those who are awake and those who are asleep. Everybody got that? Mm -hmm. It's not with him together. It's those who are awake and those who are asleep together. All right, there. That's just a point of doctrine for you. The event which occurs at the rapture will occur for the living and the dead at that time, as is detailed in verse 4, 13 through 18. We did that a couple weeks ago. No point in doing it again. Just go back and watch those particular videos if you missed them. Like Jim, he says, yeah, I'm going to go watch last, last week. week's. Um, but that's okay. You had a good thing you were doing, so that's good. Um, so, life application. Death has, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> death has no hold on those in Christ. Okay, does everybody know that Paul writes that elsewhere as well? Uh, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Let's go there. 1 Corinthians 15, because it bears on what we're reading right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, um, uh, For this corruptible, this is verse 53, must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, and he's not saying it like it might happen. He's saying it is going to happen. Okay, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Now, all of your faith, all of your faith is tied up in this right here. Okay, if you believe in Jesus, if you say that you're a saved believer in Jesus, then why are you moaning about the things of this life? They're temporary. Now, I'm not saying that you, you, you can't have really bad days. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that you can't, like, poor Tom is suffering. He's like, oh, this is terrible. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the state of hopelessness that so many Christians cling to. They cling to it. Like, there's, it, 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 my life is just a basket case, and I can't make it another day. I, it, it, and this is a, a thing that goes on with them. It's not just a one-time thing, or it's like the pain of this world. It's ongoing. Why? If your faith really believes what you have, oh, look at that then think of what he said. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? It is done. Back table, please. Okay. It is done. This is what Paul says. 
this is what our hope should be. And if that is true, then why would we hold on to our misery? Why would we say this life is so futile? Why would we do it? Who cares about this life? Uh, once again, I'm not saying that not when you're in the hospital, not to be miserable. That's why we're in the hospital. Okay. Um, thank you, Faith. Did well, you get yours? No, that's just part of it. Oh. Okay. Um, Do you need okay. a hand? Yeah. I love you. Uh, oh, Sergio's got it. Okay. okay. So he's gonna. He's serving. He's now serving. He's getting rewards for helping. Okay. Um, uh, just so you know, just in case I forget to say this, we're gonna stop early. Okay. And we are gonna have dinner. Okay. We're not having a pizza today. Instead, um, I took what was left of the people they gave, and let me give their name right now, because I hate when I forget this. Uh, I've got some people, I still have uh, some from Stephen Donna Cornish, some from Phil, and some from Irene, okay? And then I added in a lot more, because we've got a ton of food. And so I thought, you know, I, uh, my wife is retiring, I'm happy about that. John and Kathy came all the way from Arkansas, I'm happy about that. And then uh, yesterday I heard that Steve was coming down from up north. And I said, and then we have Al here. So, I mean, he just showed up out of the blue. So you get to participate as well. I'm so glad that people came because last week we had four people in class. And if I had done this last week, wow. there, we, still we, uh, we'd still be eating it. So anyway, I'm very happy about this. I want to thank everybody that is given to let us uh, have a meal over the past. Uh, I've got a whole list of them. They're all done now. Oh, wait, there's one more. I did. Uh, yes, Dave Trujillo gave us um, some money as well. And so I added all that together. It's on a different side, so I missed that. But I added it all together, and then I added in a little more because we've got a ton of food. And this is going to be Mexican food today. Look at that. We got just trays of it. So I want to thank them for that. I hope that nobody is angry that I did this instead of getting pizza. Because, um, I wanted to walk through the camera. People need to know what is happening. <laughs> yeah, like, we got another guy over there carrying that as well. So anyway, thank you for doing that, Faith. I appreciate it. All right. Um, so let's fi let's finish this commentary quickly, and then we'll be done. It's it's one hour. So um, okay. Um, life application, and we'll be done. Death has no hold on those in Christ. If you are facing the death of a loved one who believes. Or if you are facing your own earthly end, you should not worry. God cherishes, cherishes your faith at all times. How much more when that faith is demonstrated at the door of the great unknown encounter that we call death. In Christ, death is defeated, and in Christ, death has no sting. Let us stand firm on this truth and receive additional rewards for continued faith at such a time. Okay, I remember a uh, guy, I don't, I think it was John Knox. I could be wrong with this. If it was John Knox, great. If it's not, I apologize for getting the wrong name. Um, I was told that he had a verse that he loved. It was, he called it his anchor. This is my anchor verse. And it was from the book of John. I don't remember the verse, but he was laying there about to die. And he said to his wife, he said, read me my anchor one more time. And when I heard that, I thought that is a man that knows where he is going. He wasn't in distress about dying. He was very happy, and he wanted his anchor one last time. So we have a hope that we should not throw away through uh, unhappiness in this life, through thinking everything is against you, that the Lord doesn't care about you. Why is God mad at me? We should never have that attitude. God is not mad at you just because you're going through great troubles and trials. God loves you because of Jesus Christ, okay? That is the truth of the matter. Everything else is 
your incorrect analysis of what God has done. Yes, Burke. I've been stewing over this since you went over it. He takes his righteousness to us. He imputes. That's right. He imputes, he imputes it. it. Now, it's not impartation, and people get that wrong. Imputation is different than impartation. And let me explain this because I want people to get this. Imputation means that Christ's righteousness is granted to us. That is what God deems us as. It does not mean he has imparted it to us. I am now righteous because of myself. I now possess righteousness. Impartation means that what he has, I now have. That's not it. What Christ has, I now have from Christ. But it's not... It's still his. It is his righteousness imputed to me. God sees me through Christ. He does not see me as a perfect person. If he did, then I wouldn't need Christ any longer. So that's a different... You have to go and read up on imputation and impartation, but go ahead. It's like the bookkeeping terms. You know, over here is we owe. Right. And then he imputes... He imputes it. It's paid up. That's right. It's exactly right. So very good. That's what we need to remember. You've got different doctrines in there, substitution, you've got atonement, you've got propitiation. They all deal with the same act, the cross of Jesus Christ, but we have to get them into the right boxes. Okay, once again, if anybody that sent money for this is uh, upset that I did this instead of pizza, let me know and I will uh, we'll resolve it together. We'll but um, no, no, <laughs> I'm very thankful for people that help us out, but I knew that there would be a lot of people. I was actually hoping there'd be a lot of people because if not, this wouldn't have worked out. And it's funny that uh, two weeks ago I was going to do this, and I didn't and because I thought, well, I can't think of who's coming today, and the class was full. Massively <laughs> And so I'm like, well, it would have been the perfect day, but once again. So here we go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your provision. We thank you for what you have done for us and uh, how you have just guided us and tended to us so wonderfully in our lives. But more than that, you've promised us something beyond these lives. You've promised us something that is eternal and it is ours because of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. We thank you for the people that have blessed this food through uh, helping us with it. And uh, we just want to lift them up in gratitude. And for anybody else that has helped this ministry over the years, we're so grateful, Lord. Uh, we're, we're so grateful that it has been able to continue now for 10 full years in this building. And uh, in a couple more months, it'll be 10 years. But we're grateful for that. And we just thank you and praise you that you have done this for us and uh, so we ask that you bless this food bless the people that are listening or who will listen and we thank you and praise you in jesus name amen Amen. all right i'm going to back up the uh camera and then we'll say goodbye wave goodbye (laughs) boy that smells so good i'm just wow okay guys we love you guys have a great weekend we'll see you thursday sunday sunday be here or be square All right, that's done and that's done. Okay, good. Very, very nice. Uh, uh, Oh, there it is. Okay, got that, got that. Oh, there's a lot of food. You guys have to eat. Have to. Have to. And if there's anything left over, somebody has to take it. Okay? We don't have room. We have mango. We don't have room. So please, don't feel bad about taking food if we don't finish it. Okay, this goes here.